Chapter 15. How to Deal with Excuses I'm not very bad. The mistake that this man is making is judging himself by a false standard. The remedy is to correct his standard. Say to him, It may be that you are not very bad in your own estimation, or in the opinion of others. But let us see what God says about you. His word is the only true standard. Open your Bible and ask him to read aloud Romans chapter 3 verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. After he has read it, ask him a few questions. Whose words are these which you have read? God's words. Does he know the real condition of a man's heart? Yes. Does he know a man's heart better than the man himself? Probably. Who does he say is righteous? He says that there is none righteous. What, not one? No, not one. Are you an exception to this rule? I suppose not. Then you admit that you are not really righteous. I suppose I must. Ask him to read Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Then say to him, Who does God say have sinned? All have sinned. Are you an exception? No. Then you admit that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By this time, the man is becoming uneasy. He's beginning to realize that whatever he may be in his own estimation, in God's sight, he is a sinner. You have withdrawn his attention from the inconsistent church members with whom he has formerly compared himself, and you have fixed his mind upon the great God to whom he must give an account and by whose holy law he must be judged. Another good verse to use with this class is Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6. After the man has read it, ask him, Who does God say has gone astray? All of us. Does that include you? I suppose it does. What does he say we have done? Each of us has turned to his own way. Then according to God's word, having one's own way is sin? So it seems. It is well to emphasize this point strongly, for to the average person, the word sin means some form of vice or crime. According to this verse, however, the real essence of sin consists in having one's own way instead of walking in God's way. It may not be an immoral way, a dishonest way, or an untruthful way, but it is His way and not God's way in which He ought to walk. Returning to the verse, you can ask, What do you say of a sheep which has gone astray? It is lost. Then, if you have had your own way through life instead of doing God's will, you too are lost, are you not? So it appears. Admitting then that you are a lost sinner, what does God say that He has done with your sins? And the Lord has caused our iniquity to fall on Him. Then your sins have made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Yes. When Jesus took your place on the cross and died for your sins, you refused to acknowledge Him as your Savior, did you not? Yes. And you have never once thanked Him for what He has done for you, have you? No. And yet you say you are not very bad. If this is not bad, will you tell me what is? There is only one thing worse, and that is to continue rejecting such a Savior. In dealing with self-righteous people, it is well-nigh useless to argue. Neither would it be a very gracious thing to tell them that you thought they were great sinners. They would not believe it if you did, and they might likely retort, And you are another. The only effective way of dealing with them is to bring them face to face with God and make them realize 
that they are dealing with him rather than with you. If you have sufficient time, it is good to ask a person to read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, using the first personal pronoun. He was despised and forsaken by me, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But he was pierced through for my transgressions, he was crushed for my iniquities. The chastening for my well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging I am healed. I, like sheep, have gone astray. I have turned to my own way, but the Lord has caused my iniquity to fall on him. Another way is to ask a person if he knows that he has committed the greatest sin a man can commit. He will probably answer, No, I have not. Ask him to read Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38. Then ask him what is the greatest sin. He will answer that violating the first and greatest commandment must be the greatest sin. Ask him if he has kept that commandment. When he confesses that he has not, hold him to the point until he admits that he is guilty of committing the greatest sin that a man can commit, namely, that of not loving the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind. I am afraid I cannot hold out. In dealing with any case, it is good to determine the cause of the man's condition first, and then look for a cure. There may be many causes, but whatever they are, there is always a sure cure in the Word of God. In this case, it is evident that the cause of the man's fear is this. He is thinking of saving himself instead of committing the case to Christ. He means to try a little harder than ever before to do good, but he has failed so often in the past that he has little confidence that he will succeed any better in the future. The man is right. He certainly will fail if he relies upon his own efforts to lead a Christian life. In this case, the remedy is to take the man's attention away from himself and fix it upon the Lord Jesus, who alone can save him. Say to him, My dear friend, the question is not whether you can hold out, but whether God can save you. Let us see what he says about it. Opening your Bible, ask him to read Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 aloud. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. After he has read it, say to him, If God is able to save anyone who draws near to him, there is certainly some hope for you. With the salvation such as Christ offers, there are no hopeless cases, do you see? Yes, it does look a little more hopeful, I must confess, but I am afraid I would fail if I started in the Christian life. My persistence is not very strong and I am easily discouraged. That may be true, but do you know the Savior has made provision also to keep you from falling? Read what he says in Jude 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Isn't that splendid? able to keep you from stumbling and to present you without fault. Blameless would mean a great deal, but without fault means much more. That is the condition in which Christ promises that you shall be when he presents you before the Father. Moreover, the joy referred to in that verse is not the joy of the sinner, though that will be unspeakable, but the joy of the Savior as he looks with actual pride upon his finished work. It does not seem possible, does it, that you can be saved so completely and made so perfect and beautiful 
that the Lord Jesus will put you on exhibition as a sample of his handiwork, with actual pride and joy. And yet that is precisely what he says he can do, and he certainly ought to know. Now, does not your case seem hopeful, looking at it from God's standpoint? Yes, I must admit that it does. But you see, my case is peculiar. I had a grandfather who was a drunkard, and I have inherited from him an appetite for liquor. Occasionally, an awful craving for strong drink comes upon me with irresistible power, and down I go before it. That is the real cause of my apprehension. If it were not for that, I think I could be saved, but you see, my case is peculiar. Yes, I see your case is peculiar, but do you know we have a peculiar Savior? In the first place, he was acquainted with that grandfather of yours and knows all about that appetite. In the second place, he has made ample provision for it in the book. Indeed, he has provided a special promise for just such cases. Read, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now let us sum it all up. Jesus says that if you commit the keeping of your soul to him, he is able to save to the uttermost and keep you from falling. Furthermore, knowing just how weak you are, he guarantees that no temptation shall be allowed to come to you that you cannot bear. When temptation does come, as come it must to all, he will provide some door of escape. But this is not all. He promises that he will present you before God so faultless and perfect that he himself will be proud of you. Now, what will you do? Will you keep trying to save yourself and fail as you always have? Or will you commit your soul to this Savior who can save, keep, and protect you from every foe? If the man is sincere in his desire to be a Christian, there is only one alternative. Usually, he will accept it. If these verses do not lead a person to a decision, I have sometimes tried this method. You are lost now anyway, are you not? Yes, I am lost now. Well, if you should try the Christian life and fail, you could not be any worse off than you are now, could you? No. But if you should succeed, you would be a great deal better off, would you not? Certainly. Then it looks to me as if you have everything to win and nothing to lose by starting. Is that not so? Yes, but I never thought of that before. Will you then kneel right here and commit the keeping of your soul to Christ? I will. I have seldom found a person who could not be convinced by such simple reasoning if they honestly desired to be a Christian. Dealing with those who say, Not now. As usual, let us consider first the cause and then the cure. Perhaps some habit must be abandoned, some companion must be dropped, or some unpleasant duty must be done. It may be only the natural inertia of the soul that shrinks from grappling with a subject so serious, but more likely, there is some secret sin that the man is unwilling to abandon. The real cause is that the man is not willing to surrender his will to God. He wants his own way and though he flatters himself that he will yield to God sometime, he is not willing to do it now. Whatever the cause, the cure is always the same. God's Word. Ask the man by whom he expects to be saved, if he is ever saved. He will answer, God alone can save me. 
emphasize that thought by having him read aloud John chapter 6 verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Call his attention to God's command. Acts chapter 17 verse 30. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. After he has read the verse, ask him if God has a right to make such a command. Ask him if he, who is dependent on God for salvation, dares to refuse to obey this plain command. Show him the consequences of such a refusal. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 24, 26, and 28. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your dread comes. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me diligently, but they will not find me. God's Time 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Show him that God's time is the best and only sure time. There is no certainty that he will be accepted tomorrow, but there is a positive promise for today. Make him realize that the habit of putting off his responsibility will grow constantly stronger and that ten years from now he will be less disposed to repent than he is today. Show him that there must be some moment of definite surrender to God and that no lapse of time will make that surrender any easier. Indeed, it will grow harder as the years pass by. And if he puts it off, the chances are that he will never do it. The Uncertainty of Life Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Show him that in putting off repentance, he is reckoning upon the continuance of life, which is entirely uncertain. Remember that Satan is persuading him in his subtle way to wait a little longer. The old serpent does not dare suggest that he never repent, or even that he put it off a long time, but he cunningly says, Not now. Occasionally, a soul may be won by taking the devil's side of the argument and pleading his cause so boldly that the absurdity of his reasoning is apparent. A friend of mine at a Northfield conference was asked to speak to a young man with whom many had labored in vain. Meeting him alone one day, he said to him, These people in the hotel are bothering you a good deal on the subject of religion, are they not? The man blushed and admitted that he had been somewhat annoyed, then followed a conversation something like this. You don't need to give any thought to this matter for a long time yet. You had better put it off for at least a couple of years, don't you think so? I am not sure it would be well to put it off so long as that. Why not? Because I might not live two years. That is true. Well, put it off one year. That is safe enough, is it not? No, I don't suppose it is entirely safe, for I might die in one year. Sure enough, you might. Well, put it off six months. Are you willing to do that? The young man hesitated. Call it three months. Will you promise not to think of it for three months? I wouldn't like to promise that. Why not? Because I might die in three months. Will you promise not to think of it for a week? That is safe enough, isn't it? No one can be sure of a week, I suppose. You are certainly sure of one day, aren't you? No, not positively sure of even one day. Well, said my friend, 
if you are not sure of even a single day, hadn't you better give your heart to the Lord now? And he did, right then and there. It pays sometimes to interpret Scripture with a watch, as in the following instance. One day, a Christian worker met a man with whom he had often talked on the subject of religion. Asking him when the question was to be settled, he received the answer, Very soon, I think. If you wish to be saved, what do you have to do? Except Christ. Just so. But when? Now, I suppose. Yes, said the worker. That is just what the Bible says. And now means now. Taking out his watch, he said, It is just three o'clock. Will you, at three o'clock this afternoon, accept Christ as your Savior? After a long struggle, he replied, I will. Off went their hats, and there in the street they praised God for the grace of decision. At a meeting that night, the convert was the first to pray, and this is what he said Lord, I thank you for saving me at three o'clock this afternoon. Dealing with those who complain of Christians. In dealing with those who complain of the hypocrites in the church, it is helpful to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and ask them to read it. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Also show them Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Then ask the objector, Who has appointed you judge over your fellow men? Has the Lord appointed you? No. Have your fellow men selected you for this important position? Of course not. You don't mean to say that you have appointed yourself judge, do you? A self-appointed judge? Who ever heard of such a thing? Then ask him to read Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Ask him if it ever occurred to him that he was a hypocrite himself, and when he answers in the negative, say to him, Well, let us see. You condemn the hypocrites because they pretend to be what they are not. I do. But when you claim that the reason you are not a Christian is because of the hypocrites in the church, you are pretending what is not true. The real reason why you do not become a Christian is because you want your own way and you are not willing to obey God. When you say it is because of the hypocrites, you are saying what is not true and you know it. Show him John chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Say to him, Admitting that there are hypocrites in the church, what is that to you? If every man in the church were a hypocrite, that would not excuse you from the duty of repentance. If there was a call for volunteers to defend this country, would you stay out of the army because some bad men would probably enlist? I suppose not. Possibly you are a mason or an odd fellow. Are there any black sheep in your lodge? I must confess that there are a few. And yet you joined the lodge knowing this fact. Do you urge others to do the same? That is true. Why then do you offer such a silly excuse when the subject of religion arises? If you do not wish to be a Christian, say so in a manly way. But do not try to hide yourself behind the faults of others. The only safe hiding place for a sinner is the cross of Christ, and you will realize it someday.
A man once said to his pastor that the reason why he did not accept Christ was because he once had a partner who was a professing Christian who wronged him in business. That is your real reason, is it? asked the minister. It is, replied the man. Suppose we put it down in writing, said the minister. And drawing out his notebook, he wrote, The reason why I am not a Christian is that my partner, who claimed to be a Christian, wronged me in a business deal. Tearing out the leaf, he folded it and handed it to the man, saying, When you come before the great white throne and God asks you why you have rejected his son, just hand him that paper. And turning away, he left him. Hardly had he reached home when his doorbell rang, and there stood the man with the paper in his hand. Well, said the minister, what can I do for you? I have brought this paper back. I am afraid it would not answer as an excuse to give to God. You think that God would not accept it? I am afraid not. We may as well tear it up then. And the minister tore it into fragments and threw them away. Now, have you any other excuse which is better? I can't think of any. If you do not have any good reason for not becoming a Christian, should you not give your heart to God now? Yes, sir, and I will. Among the tracts I referred to is an excellent one for the people who are always complaining about the hypocrites in the church. On one side is the question, Do those hypocrites hinder you? On the other side is the following. Remember, when the church goes through the pearly gates, those hypocrites will be left outside the gate, on your side, unless you repent, and you will have to spend all eternity with them. Would it not be better to repent and live with them a few years in the church than to spend all eternity with them elsewhere? You must spend some time with those hypocrites somewhere. Where shall it be? If one scatters these freely, all the excuse-makers in town will close their mouths forever on the subject of hypocrites.